I think that a lot of teens and kids are, have less stigma about getting mental health care. They are more vocal, more open to getting uh, care, more um, open to saying, hey, I need some help. And I think us as parents, we need to do a better job of listening, heeding their words and acting on it because we still have that stigma and that fear. You know, we don't want them to get labeled. We don't want them to get misdiagnosed. We don't want them to think about themselves as having a disorder, right? As having anxiety, as having something that's a disability. We want our kids to be limitless. And I think that this generation of child is teaching us that just because you need something that's a work in progress doesn't mean that you're limited. You can still be limitless and a work in progress together. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The PediPals, or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast. We are so grateful for each and every one of our listeners and Thank you once again for being here. By popular demand today, our topic is all about mental health. We have been wanting to do an episode on this topic for months and months and from the time that we started the PD Pals. And we've been trying to understand the needs of our parents through our social media platform, and it was unanimous. Everybody wants more about mental health. And we have the perfect person today as our special guest to help us talk all about this topic, which is a huge topic and probably needs many more podcast episodes. But today we have the wonderful Dr. Shivana Naidu, who is a double board certified child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist. She's an outpatient psychiatrist and over the course of her career, she has been seeing and treating thousands of young patients and their families. She is well aware of how confusing it is to navigate the system of mental health care in our country. She's a mother of two boys, and as a parent, she understands how difficult it is to choose to give medications to our children and how tricky it can be to sort out what is normal and what is just a phase. She has recently started her own podcast called The Thinking It Through with Dr. Naidu, Child Psychiatrist, to help empower parents and patients to give the best mental mental health care possible. And we love having her on our podcast, and we're so excited to meet her because not only is she a trained allopathic medical doctor, but she's also pursuing integrative psychiatry certification to learn how to utilize supplements and integrate mind, body, and soul to help parents better. In her spare time, she practices meditation just like us, plays the guitar, and is an inspiring singer-songwriter, which we can't wait to ask her more about. But thank you so much for being here, Dr. Naidu. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. I really appreciate being here and talking to you, ladies. It's so exciting to have you. We've been waiting to record this for a while with you, and we have so much to ask you about from your integrative piece, because that's like music to mine and Anna's ears, <laughs> to your pastimes. So um, do you mind just first kind of telling our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe what you would like for them to know? Sure. So uh, so my name is Dr. Shivana Naidu. I'm a board-certified child and adult psychiatrist. So that means I'm a medical doctor. I went to medical school and then did training in adult psychiatry and then training in child psychiatry. Um, I'm a New Yorker, you know, born and raised. And uh, we recently moved to Arizona. So I now live in Chandler, Arizona. Um, I've been doing outpatient psychiatry for my entire career. And I have two wonderful little boys, ages five and three, and they are my world and my teachers. And I really hope that I can treat every patient that comes my way, just like I want my boys to be treated if I were to see a psychiatrist. So that's my aspiration whenever I see and treat kids. I love that you said my teachers. I feel the exact same way as a mom of two, Um, especially because everyone knows that 
when you have your first child, no matter what you thought you were going to be prepared for, it's going to be a whole entirely different experience. And they teach yeah. you to humble you so much, but then you end up having a second and then realizing you still don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, every kid is different. Every kid has different needs and, you know, you try to meet their needs the best way that you can. Yeah. Perfect. Well, how did you, you kind of mentioned a little bit that you've been born and raised in New York, but then you ended up in Arizona. How was your experience with the pandemic? So it's interesting. So when the pandemic hit, I was living in Albany, New York, which is upstate New York. I work for an academic medical center. And we actually, after my fellowship, we moved to Arizona um, after I had my first son. I worked in outpatient psychiatry. Then I had my second son. I missed my family. I moved back to Albany, but my family's based in Queens. So when we first moved there, we were coming back and forth between Albany and Queens, which is about two and a half hours, three hours. And it was working out really well. And then the pandemic hit and then the New York City became the epicenter. So every day, my mom, my in-laws would call us and say, this person died, that person died. I mean, it was really tragic uh, and traumatic. And we didn't see them for, uh, I think, from Christmas, I guess, 2019 until July the 4th, 2020. We hadn't seen them in all that time. And I think it just really um, being isolated in that way, away from our family, being fearful, because at that time there was no vaccine, right? They weren't vaccinated. And I remember my mom for Mother's Day telling me she put her mask on and she went out to this farmer's market to get pineapple or something. And I was so frightened for her that she would get sick. So I think it really, I'm telling the story because I think all of us have experienced in different levels and ways anxiety. Anxiety being raised up because of the unknowns of what the pandemic has brought to us and how the pandemic has brought to light how we don't know so much. You know, even though we're scientists and we're supposed to, to know things and there should be um, protocols, we see all the holes that still are in these protocols, right? Because we are a work in progress. You know, we are a prospective study trying to figure out what's going to happen, but, you know, we're really not going to know the ramifications of the pandemic until uh, till it's over and years after. But I think um, it really just elevated um, our, our fear and our worry about what will happen to our families, what will happen to us. I think it really helped us all reassess our priorities. Um, for most of us who have been um, forced to work from home, forced to do telehealth, right? When you're used to seeing patients in person, I think it just made us all reassess what's important to us, our families, our community, um, and who we are. I love that. I love that you said that we're a prospective study. It's so true. And being a physician, being on the healthcare side, it's very humbling, like you mentioned, you know, because we know so much, we've learned so much, and we're continuing to learn. But again, we might not have all the answers. And something like the pandemic comes along and it really humbles all of us. And um, that's amazing that, you know, you, you were able to, and you have this wonderful uh, expertise, you know, and you can really really help children because we have seen that struggle in our families that we treat every day on, um, you know, from anxiety to depression, teen mental health. So we are seeing this across the board, not only in our own homes and our families, but also in the patients we're taking care of. And I think before we kind of delve into everything, I would love for you to just kind of clarify for us what a child psychiatrist does and how that's different from a psychologist, if you can kind of help our audience make that distinction, that would be really helpful. Sure. I, I appreciate that question because I think in mental health care, there are so many people sometimes that it's confusing who we are because we all look and sound the same. So, and that's kind of why I started my podcast, thinking it through with Dr. Naidu, child psychiatrist, because I feel like there's a lot of fog and misunderstanding and misinformation about mental health care. So I have answered some of those questions in my podcast. Please tune in and, and listen. But I think the question between psychiatrists and psychologists happens often because people oftentimes think I'm a psychologist because I talk a lot about therapy. <laughs> um, but as a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who went to medical school. And their role mainly is with education, diagnosis, and medication if needed. A psychologist is also a doctorate level of clinician. Uh, sometimes they have a PsyD or a PhD, but their role is not with medication. They can't prescribe. Um, there are five states actually where they can prescribe, but that's a whole other topic. But in general, they can't prescribe medications. And their goal is mainly with providing therapeutic interventions or therapy. And there are many, many different types of people that can provide therapy. You don't have to go to a psychologist, but 
there are uh, clinical social workers, there are licensed marriage family therapists, there are play therapists, there are counselors, there are even coaches. But the psychologist is at the highest level, the doctorate level of training, um, and has the most expertise with assessment, particular tests that they can do for specific um, diagnosis of learning disability or intellectual disability or autism, as well as providing therapy. So they're kind of at the highest level of training for providing therapy. And as psychiatrists or child psychiatrists, um, as you know, there are also nurse practitioners, there are physician assistants, there are all other sorts of people that can provide medications as well. Pediatricians, right, can provide medications for mental health issues very frequently. But a child psychiatrist has the highest level of training to provide medications for kids with mental health issues. So to become a child psychiatrist, at the end of our training, we do a two-year fellowship post-residency and adult training to qualify uh, to have that certification and that board certification. That's wonderful. Yeah. And that, you know what? You are, that was really well said, but also you are more needed now than ever as a child psychiatrist. You're like a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a shortage of us. There really aren't that many of us um, out there. There, um, the, the, This has been said for years and years. Um, so unfortunately, because there aren't much of us, I think a lot of responsibility falls on you guys. You know, you guys probably see more than I do in terms of the need to really educate and, you know, work on the stigma of getting mental health care, you know, because I think a lot of parents would much rather see a pediatrician than ever come to see me. And that's one of the, um, you know, the blessings I feel of being on this podcast. I feel really honored to hopefully open that door and help parents not feel so scared. You know, we don't bite. We want to help. We want to help your child. We want to help your family. And I think that um, what I wanted to do in my podcast too is provide education about what we do. You know, just because you see a psychiatrist doesn't mean we're going to force medication. Doesn't mean we're going to force a label on a child. Doesn't mean we're going to force you into a hospital. You know, our job in my mind as a child psychiatrist is to one, prevent suicide. That's our number one goal. Um, two is to really help ease the mental suffering of kids. And then three, I think strengthening the family, because once our patient leaves our door, it's on the family, right? So we want to give this family, these parents, these grandparents, these step-parents, these siblings, the help they need to support this kid um, in the best way possible. That's so good. I never really thought about it until you just said it, that, that families are more comfortable going to their pediatrician than going to a mental health professional. But now that you said it, it clicked, you know, as soon as I say, let's see a child psychiatrist or a child therapist, everyone shuts down. Yeah. So you're very right about that. Um, and I really love also what you said about your primary goal and not, you know, I think what's happened a lot of the times is that I, and I hope you can touch on this too, from my, from my experience in treating patients, it, people will have had one maybe not so pleasant experience with somebody, and then they think that that's how it's always going to go. So perhaps they did come across a mental health professional that did try to diagnose them or label them, as you said, or perhaps tried to do medications or didn't do enough or was something, right? And it's such a fragile area also, you know, it's not an easy thing to treat. It's not one size fits all. So there yeah. is a little bit of trial and error when it goes with this type of field. And yeah. then because of that, they're not willing to try again. And actually most of the time it's the kids. Um, the kids are the most hesitant, especially the teens to want to go. And I, I thought maybe you could touch on your experience in that sense. So, you know, I think, you know, as a psychiatrist who doesn't work in private practice, right, I don't, I'm not a private psychiatrist yet or now, I've always taken insurance or worked for a company. So managed care really affects the quality of care we can give. And I think it's really unfortunate because, I mean, yesterday was Friday, I had patients back to back to back to back. One of my patients who I've been trying many medications with, you know, she had a breakdown she was talking about her struggles. She's a teenager teenage girl, um, suffering with depression. I tried three medications with her and she was basically saying, you know, I really don't think this is working for me. I feel like there's a hole inside of myself that I can't fix and I need your help to fix it. And I thought she was so brave and so eloquent to say that to me because a lot of parents and kids wouldn't say that. Right. So I, I spoke with her. I wanted to talk to her, but I had patients waiting, you know, and I went over my time to give her the time that she needed um, but then I have to cut someone else short, you know, because I gave her that extra 15 minutes, the other patient behind her had only 15 minutes. And I think that pressure we feel 
to, because we have so many people back to back, it makes it really hard for us to deliver a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. So I think there are a lot of psychiatrists and I would imagine mental, mental and medical professionals as well feel this pressure. So we can't deliver our all for all of our patients. It gets really tough for us. And, you know, it may be that that one experience where this person, this, this teen saw this psychiatrist and they really didn't give them hundred percent, it was enough to deter them. And I think in my podcast, I do say, you know, you may have to give this person three strikes and they're out, you know, give them a couple chances. And if you don't feel it's a good fit, move on because there's a wait list, unfortunately. Right. So I say, try us out because not everyone's not going to be a good fit for me. Right. Everyone's not going to like me and that's okay. But with mental health, it is fragile. It is a, a what we talk about therapeutic alliance. We have to build this relationship with our patient. And I think for teens in particular, it's tricky because if you're under 18, really you're not able, quote unquote, able, we know you're able, but legally you cannot consent to care. You can assent or agree to care, but you can't consent or you know, give the legal uh, acceptance of taking a medication. So as a psychiatrist, we need to engage the parents. But oftentimes parents and teens are not seeing eye to eye, right? They don't see things eye to eye. So when you work with a teen, you have to have the teen know that you're there for them and not there for the parent. So if there's an issue between the parent and the teen and you align too much with the parent, the teen's also gonna have a hard time trusting you, right? Because they think that you're seeing the parent's perspective and not theirs. So when I work with a teen, usually I talk to the teen first alone before I bring the parent in. I let the teen know I'm here for you. You know, I have to work with your parent, but like, I need to hear what you want. And I think sometimes when I work with teens, parents get a little bit uncomfortable because if the teen does not want medications, I can't force medications on you, right? My goal is to help you understand your options. But at the end of the day, it's your choice, right? It's your choice whether you want to have this treatment or not. And I can provide the education as to how come it may be in your best interest to do A or B, but I can't make you do any of that. And I think sometimes the parents are hoping that we can do that, you know, nudge them in that way. Um, but it's it's a fine line when working with different developmental ages, right? And I think not only teens is this a challenge with, but the tween, right? This, uh, this 11 to 14, where they may look a lot older, but still think a little bit younger, so you have a lot of variation in that age where you can have a 13-year-old who's still acting like they're seven and you have to do a lot more hand-holding or you can have a 10-year-old who's really behaving like they're 14. So it's, it's, it's really kind of sorting out how to meet that child with where they're at and how to meet that family with where they're at. Because I've definitely had teens who are teens or tweens who are ready for medication and the parents are not there. You know, So depending on who needs more work, um, more alliance, more help, more guidance, more comfort, you have to maneuver how you're working with them and what you deliver. Um, so it is, it does take time. And I apologize for all of those teens and parents and kids out there who've had a terrible experience with a mental health professional, because I know it can make or break their opening to seeking more treatment. Um, I'm sorry that you had that experience. I'm sorry that, um, that you feel that you are, were not heard but please don't give up. Okay. We're out here. Some of us are out here and we're willing to work with you and try. So don't give up. Yeah. I really, really appreciate all of those comments and you really resonated with us and me especially because this is the struggle for a lot of healthcare providers in general. You know, we get 15 max minutes to do a whole well child visit. And in that moment, we're trying to assess which shots you need, which, you know, your full body health, and then also mental health on top of that. So a lot of us, like you mentioned, want to do more, but we're restricted with time. And um, definitely, I totally agree with what you're saying that families need to not give up. And if they're not aligning with a provider, they definitely need to find someone that will listen, you know, and, and it's so hard. And I kind of describe it in a way, especially because I, we see a lot of teens and preteens and young children, and that stigma is really, really there. And so I, we almost have to kind of put it as, you know, you come to me to see, to take care of your physical health. You know, a lot of times you need a doctor, like you go for your stomach, your gut health, or your heart health, you know, mind health is also important. And is it affecting all of those things, you know, and so to have a lot of preventative 
mental health care is also really important, you know, but we understand the limitations in our system because there's not always therapists readily available and psychiatrists readily available. So a lot of times what we try to do is we try to give anticipatory guidance and we say, okay, these are some of the signs, the red flags, the things that you really need to look for to make this a more urgent issue, you know, to make this that, yes, we need to get you into a psychologist or a psychiatrist right away. And we talk about you know, suicidality. We talk about what classifies as being a phase or mood changes um, in a child versus what is now they're at risk for depression um, or, or, you know, more serious conditions. So what kinds of things do you guide parents on, on, on red flags? When to come contact their provider or to seek mental health care immediately? So it's interesting because on my end, I'm usually getting the kid after that flag has been raised, right? After the pediatrician has done the good work, right, of raising those warning signs, um, that's when they come to me. Uh, the practice where I have right now, um, the clinic that I work at is a nonprofit. So I see kind of regular assessments as well as kids who just came out of the hospital. So these are kids usually where it's gone really bad and they've gotten to the ER, they were admitted to a mental health hospital, and then they come out and they work with me and I'm their first outpatient doctor. And usually those kids really have had not such a great experience going into the hospital because they didn't want to go to the hospital, right? Because no one does. Um, but what I what I t- say in my podcast and what I would say to any parent listening to this is, one, if your child has had any changes in, you know, the basic three, sleep, appetite, school, right? You guys are asking about that all the time. Sleep, appetite, school. If these changes are happening and they're transient, meaning they're only lasting for a little bit, I would just bank that, right? Because what we're looking at is patterns. So if it persists, then I'd be a little bit concerned. I'd be a little bit concerned, you know, what's causing the sleep difficulty? How come they're not eating? Is it a medical issue, right? Or is it not a medical issue? Is there something going on psychosocially or in their mind and in their social environment that could be precipitating this, such as starting a school year? such as a family member getting sick with COVID, such as, you know, parents that are in a phase of separation. You know, all of these things can really affect those aspects. But if a child starts really withdrawing from the family, now not withdrawing, just going onto their tablet and watching, you know, YouTube all day, which all kids are doing now, but really seeming like they don't want to participate in the regular things your family does, whether that is family dinner or sitting down watching a movie, they just seem more withdrawn, I would open up a conversation, say, hey, what's up? Let's chat. And I think sometimes parents uh, and myself as a parent, I too, am, uh, f- I fall for this. I will start digging like what's going on with you? What's happening to you? And then, then it starts to feel a little bit more like I'm interrogating them. And I think all parents who are proactive and a little bit anxious like me want to do the right thing. But I would even start talking about yourself. You know, if the kid does not want to talk, I would say, hey, like I have, I, I have this issue, you know, I, I don't know what to cook for dinner. I have these thoughts. What do you think? You know, or I have this issue with my boss. What do you think? Get their buy-in, help them to start talking to you, to communicate with you and see how they're thinking. Um, so if they're, if they're kind of withdrawn from the family, I would have a little concern. And I think for me, if any child on their own brings up to a parent, even a little bit, like, hey, mom, I'm really nervous about this, or you know, I really don't know if I want to be here anymore. Like to me, if a little small inkling of that was brought up to you as a parent, you should take them to see a therapist, take them to see a counselor, take them immediately to see someone. If not, of course, bring it up to your pediatrician, right? Who can do an assessment and see if it needs more digging or needs a more professional help from a psychiatrist or a therapist, or if it can just be let be. But I wouldn't drop that because kids also worry kids also think a lot about things. And for them to have the courage to bring it up to you as their mom and dad, that tells you it's an issue for them. So we want to hear them, right? Every kid needs to be seen, needs to be heard, needs to be valued. And if they say something, we have to hear them and we have to respect them and really support them. So um, if any child brings it up, I would definitely uh, not let that go. But but yes, those basic changes in sleep, appetite, school, um, I would assess that further. I think any talk about death, really, you know, not not necessarily dying if someone passed away in the family, but there are some kids that just start thinking more and more about death, thinking more and more about 
whether they are um, their purpose on earth, that kind of thing, which is not exactly suicide, right? It's more like, what is my reason? And that could be attached to hopelessness. That could be just an existential assessment. A lot of teens go through that where they wonder, and not just teens, midlife crisis, right? Parents, like, what is our purpose? Why are we here? What do we want to do with being uh, being on earth? Um, but I think for the kids, depending on their developmental age, these big questions can be really overwhelming. They can be really overpowering and they can be frightening, right? So I think that sometimes as parents, we're able to meet them where they're at and give them that support. But we're busy. Parents, we have so many things to do. We're juggling a thousand things. And if we have more than one child, even if we have one child, it's a lot. But if we have more than one and we're juggling a marriage and a job and in-laws and like everything, it's just, it can be a lot. And we can't always be even 100% of ourselves as a parent 100% of the time, you know? So sometimes it helps to have a professional provide that support for that child in the way that they can in a non-biased non-judgmental, non-confrontational space versus having that discussion with you. Yeah. And I would add, that's wonderful. I would add also that this is something I always tell my patients and their families. If there is something that is getting in the way of your day-to-day activities. So especially for the little ones, you know, if they have a little bit of nervousness or if they're super shy or they're, they have some anxiety, parents often ask me like, at what point is this considered normal that I can handle and I can keep talking through it with them? And at what point do we need to go see a specialist? And that's usually the line that, you know, very kind of faint line I'll draw in the sand for them that if you can't go anywhere, if you have to deal with this because you want to go to the grocery store or if it's like drop off every day at school, or if it's affecting just the stuff you have to do every day, if this is getting in the way, um, you're not functioning because of it, or you're having to change the way you're doing things to get around it. That's when a mental health professional can come into place. But also I couldn't help. (laughs) This is my Achilles heel. So you were saying, I want to circle back a little bit. You were saying a while ago, which I think is is so astute, but you were saying, you know, that you really have to tell the teens that you're there for them and you do such a great job of, you know, separating them from the parents right away and talking to them first. But as a mom, <laughs> I'm thinking, man, it's so hard for parents, you know, yes, to think yes. you little baby that you held in your, you had in your stomach and then you may or may not have breastfed and then, right. you, you know, watch them through toddlerhood. And then they were, you know, so attached to you suddenly turn into this whole other human that you can't yeah. get through to. Um, and like how panic worthy is that, you know, I feel so bad for, for us, you know, of like, it's always something, you know, I, I hate to say it that way because that's just parenting. We have to get used to it. Obviously it's always something we're there for them. But another thing that I thought was really interesting and I, and, and I don't think this is medical in any way. It's just a, it's just an observation I've had because you talked a little bit about the tweens too. Um, Mm -hmm. When Anna and I were in residency, we did a lot, a lot of pediatric oncology, Um, not so much as as practicing providers now. So for those who don't know, pediatric oncology is pediatric cancer. And we did a lot of it in our training. Um, And now we will have the random, sadly, patient here then have cancer, but it's not a day-to-day thing. Mm -hmm. But when I was doing pediatric oncology, um, I noticed And I told myself, this is pre-parenting. I didn't even have kids yet. I told myself, wow, the worst age to get cancer is in the tweens because the little ones have no clue what's going on and they have no reason to want to do anything other than play. So they'll come in the hospital, they'll get their chemo and they'll be on with their merry way. They want to get better and they want to leave. Right. The teenagers definitely understand they'll have their moment of like, you know, they'll go through those phases, right. That you would expect. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they always come out of them on the other side eventually and have a wonderful attitude most of the time and say, I'm going to beat this and I'm going to, you know, it's going to be okay. And then they understand what they need to do. But that 11 to 14 year old period, the anxiety and the mortality and not being able to talk themselves out of that. They do, they, I mean, they would just torture the parents, Dr. Knight, by experience. It was tough. And I wonder if you see so, do you see so much anxiety in that age range? Well, I, I always say, I've been saying this since before I was a child psychiatrist, when I was in the residency and I started to, you know, cause in residency, you see everything, right? So I started to work with kids and still to this day, I mean, I, I have sons, um, but I really think the hardest age in mental health 
maybe in all of development, I think are girls 11 to 14. I think they are the toughest age. I'm sorry. Sorry, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Hodges. But like, I think they're so tough because yeah. they look I, so I mature. Them, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so mature, but their thinking is not as mature. So there's a mismatch. And I say this all the time. Like, you know, we look to psychiatrists as diagnosing or labeling, but I say this all the time. And you see this all the time as pediatricians, whenever there is a mismatch between their chronological age, their intellectual age, their emotional age, there is challenges. There's anxiety, there's depression because their brain and their mind and their body are not developing at the same level. Right. And that 11 to 14, there's so much growth. There's so much growth, so much change. Um, so I definitely see, and as you were talking, I'm thinking of a patient I have right now with uh, post-cancer who's struggling, you know, because she has gone through so much, uh, so many cancer treatments. She had several different types of cancers. Um, and then the consequence of the chemotherapy is just, and then the family, it's, it's, your heart goes out for these parents, you know, like, and I think it's the same for, for parents who have autism kids who have autism and they go through that developmental puberty phase, there's so much change there. And I think that, um, you know, our little, our little babies grow up and to be adults. And sometimes it happens overnight and sometimes it's a beautiful transformation. Other times it's rocky. So it is a, it is a really tough phase. And I, um, I, I think that we do need to continue to educate, uh, the, the tweens, you know, we can't forget about them. Um, so it's really challenging and we do our best to hold the hands of the parents and strap your seatbelts in <laughs> and just be present, you know, be present. And I think that's where, again, the communication with the, between the family and child is so important and having these traditions of connecting and supporting your kid um, is really, really important. And I think another thing that's, that happens around this teenage phase as well for parents on the parent side is that, you know, we, we work full-time jobs as a parent all the time but it's really not a job. It's, it's volunteer, right? We don't get paid. <laughs> we don't get overtime. We don't get bonuses. We're just constantly working with children. And I think, you know, I've, I've had this issue with my boys where, you know, when we get into an argument or they wouldn't listen to me, my, my son said, you know, mom, you're not working with me. You're not working with me. And I'm like, what are you saying? You're not working with me. But it clicked that I started feeling that I was actually working for them. You know, I felt like it was a job, a menial, I was doing menial labor, right? Like, and I think that kind of resentment builds up a lot during this teenage phase. It's 11 to 14 phase, because that's where a lot of talk back comes back. They're really challenging us. They are developmentally supposed to be breaking away from us. And in doing so, it's easier to break away from someone you're angry at than someone you love. So there's a lot of animosity that can sometimes develop in this phase as well between parents and kids and teens, developing teens. So when that feeling starts to rise in the parent that we're working for, for you and you're not grateful, we're appreciative, I think that also builds a lot of family dynamic stress um, that can really push uh, families in opposing directions, which is why I think, again, working on that connection is so important and having those traditions to work um, with versus work for. Yeah, I I love I love that whole the, everything you just said. There's so many things that we could talk about, um, but I really wanted to talk about when this preteen phase to teen phase. You know, I think what's really important is to validate the parent side, but also the children. I think that's Absolutely. where a lot of the the you know the headbutting happens is because a lot of times parents are going through their own struggles and like you said they're busy they're trying to raise children they're trying to feed them there's so much going on and and their anxieties and their things that they're worried about are not aligning with yes. the anxieties that the children have you know and so a lot of times i try to put into perspective for the families that you know um they're the things that they stress about and that they are anxious about and worried about you might not understand because now we're far, we're more removed from that, you know? So it gets really hard to, to relate sometimes. And, um, and, and children have that, like, you know, their impulse control, their, the, the part of their brain that thinks about consequence and impulses is not fully developed until probably 
25 and beyond, you know? (laughs) And so it gets very, very hard. And so like you most astutely said that when you talk to the child, you really have to then get on their level and you really have to relate. And then you have to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to say, listen, I have been through this myself, or, you know, just get to that level so that they understand where you're coming from, as opposed to another adult talking at them, you know, because I find like they really shut down when we're saying, this is what you have to do. This is what you have to do. And this is how you have to look at the world. But for them, they have that limited experience, you know? Um, And so a lot of the things I think that we do on the general pediatric side is how do we work on prevention? You know, how do we work on um, working mind, body, and soul? How do we prevent some of these things from happening? And that's why we get so excited when we hear that you're going to go into integrative medicine because that's where our passion lies too. We both love to meditate. We found that later in our careers. And we think that a lot of this mind body connection is so important because it's Absolutely. all connected, you Absolutely. know? And so we we talk a lot about screen time and other things that can affect our mental health that are external from us. So we would love to pick your brain on things that parents can do um, to help, you know, help prevent get to those kind of stages when they have to come and see you, unfortunately. You're tuned in to the Wild Child Podcast brought to you by the PD Pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at the We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns PD Pals. Yeah, so I think I touched upon it before with the idea of connection, you know, really working with, uh, with connectivity. You know, I have to tell you, so yesterday I was out to dinner with my, my husband and my, my boys and, um, I know screen time is not good. However, sometimes when you're at a fancy restaurant and you have to use it, you know? So I was talking to my husband and we were trying to have a conversation with the boys there and they were interrupting, interrupting. So we decided finally to give them some screen time, right? So they were watching videos next to us. And right next to us, there was a family that was doing the same thing. And they had their children on the, on the tablets, but with headphones on. And my husband commented and said, you know, we're never going to get to that level to put them in the headphones. And I'm like, well, why? And he says, because it's just a different level of blocking out the world. And I think that with the pandemic happening, there is so much of us at different stages of our life in different ways that feel the world is scary, is again, frightening. So I think more of us have turned to social media, online activities to block out what is really there. You know, the DSM-5, which is kind of like our Bible uh, in mental health, has a video game addiction diagnosis in progress. It's not there yet, but it is something that they're assessing. And I have definitely treated children with these issues, more teens, teenage boys. I've had a couple of them. Um, And we we have to remind ourselves that everything online is built to be addictive. That is the purpose of it. The purpose of everything, whether it's Candy Crush or it's YouTube or it's Instagram, all of it is made with professionals sometimes, with psychologists helping them to understand how to make someone stay on this longer and longer and longer. And, you know, I, the number two reason why people come to me is because of tantruming due to stopping electronics. That's the number two reason. The number one is ADHD, all the time ADHD, but the second thing is tantruming. And, you know, I, I have, when parents complain about this electronics, I tell them, you know, think about yourself. Think about what if you're watching a movie? You've been dying to see this movie all week long. It's a long week of work. You finally get into this movie. It's 90 minutes long, about minute 60. And then all of a sudden, the power stops. Everything is black. Everything is gone. You can't see the rest of the movie. How would you react? You know, like think about how an adult would react to having all the power cut off while they're watching a movie. And then I asked them, do you think it would change for you if there's a ticker tape at the top that said, hey, 15 minutes, there's going to be a power outage. 
five minutes, there'll be a power outage. I think a lot of adults, if they were really engrossed in that movie, may not care. Some would, but some may not. And I, I think it's it's good to have parents reframe how normal and natural it is to have this reaction when something that they want to do is stopped. Because these kids are on their electronics, and when it's suddenly stopped, they are going to have a meltdown. Because again, you know, Dr. Paul, you mentioned they don't have the impulse control, right? They're not there yet. They don't have the editing mechanisms with their emotions. So they're screaming and cursing and kicking and hitting and reacting the way we would inside (laughs) if that movie was stopped. So I think that um, what I advise regarding that is to let the kid know, have them acknowledge you when they're on screen time, that you have 15 minutes left, have them because you can say you have 15 minutes left. And then they have to, and then they don't realize that you actually said it because they're so engrossed. So I asked my boys, guys, repeat back to me, 15 minutes left. So they have to break their concentration, look up at you, tell you 15 minutes left. So some part of their brain did hear it, right? So then when you come back in and say 10 minutes left, you have them do the same thing so that you're kind of slowly breaking them off from this highly addictive medium. I think I went off on a total tangent. I don't remember what you previously asked. But like, I think that that having them break their concentration, acknowledge you, and you're slowly weaning them off is like that ticker tape at the top of your video, of your uh, movie telling you. It's giving you that warning sign. So when you finally stop it, it's not as bad. It will still be bad, you know? And I think so many of my parents have said, Dr. Naidu, I just stopped completely. I just took them off of social media completely, took them off of their electronics, took them off the tablet. But we know that's not the way of the world. We're not going to be able to go back, especially now after the pandemic. We have to find a way to integrate screen time and life because this is the way of the world with our with our kids. They This is all they know. They don't know a world without it. So we as parents have to find a way to use it appropriately. And as kids, we have to find a way to help our kids have bite-sized acceptable versions of it and not get so stuck in it. And I think, again, because as parents, we're so busy, it is too easy for us to give our kids screen time, you know? And I too might fall for that. You know, I'm not a perfect parent. I'm a work in progress, but it's something that we all have to work on to find a way to have a happy medium between giving them the exposure, uh, but not giving them overexposure. And, you know, I love what you said, and I want to put it, I want to flip it both ways. So the fact that you are telling, you know, and and advising parents, which is a great tip, you know, to tell them and give them the warning before you actually have to do the deed and then like really make them make eye contact with you. You're you're talking about active listening, right? Absolutely. Um, And, but that goes both ways. It it made me think, and we've been talking about this tween challenging period. I have an 11 year old daughter. And last year at the beginning of COVID, I put, put them in online school because of COVID. And I didn't feel comfortable and I, you know, all the things with the doctors, right. That we know. So I didn't feel comfortable every day. I would come home and she would say, mom, I need to go back to school. And my 11 year old, and I would be like, not now it's still too risky. I don't know enough, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd come home again and mom, I need to go back to school. Like this and this happened and blah, blah, blah. And I would just, you know, blow her off. Essentially. I felt bad, but (laughs) I did it for like a month, you know? And the thing that got me was the day that she got me was that I walked into the the house again and I knew she was going to say it again. And I thought I was doing what's best for her. Right. Like, of course, as parents all the time, we're taking away the the electronics. Why are we doing that? Because we think we're doing what's best. So also no shame and no guilt allowed here. Okay. You did what you do in the moment that you thought you did the best that you could in the moment. Absolutely. Yes. But eventually she said, mom, she, okay. Like who's the adult here said, mom, um, what is exactly like, what's your hesitation here? Because she had seen her friends had been in school and like, nothing's really happening. And, and I was like, you know what, honey, I just don't trust that they're going to follow the social distancing and that they're, you know, that people won't accidentally take their masks off and people won't do this. And I went on this whole big rant about it. I don't trust it enough. It's too new. And then she goes, yeah, but do you trust me? And then I was like, oh, okay. Wow. So she was back in school the next day. She's so smart. You did a but, good job on her. Well, I feel. But <laughs> that was, I, the reason I'm telling the story is because she tried to tell me for a long time and I didn't 
hear her. I I was in my mindset of like COVID bad. I don't want the kids to get sick. This is dangerous. It's a pandemic and I have to do what I have to do. And I don't want any families out there. Like our, our personal situation might be very different from yours. So if you're choosing to keep your kids home, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is that she was trying to tell me kids are trying to tell you stuff a lot and we're hearing, we're not actively listening. We're hearing something different and it shouldn't be their job. It was not her job to phrase it in a way that I understood, but she did. She managed to figure it out in a way that basically said that I'm going to social distance. I'll wear my mask the whole time and I'll do what what you want to feel comfortable with me going to school, but I need to go to school. And, but that's not their job, you know, and that's what I want parents to hear too, is that it's like, we have to be the ones to be actively listening more and like really tune in, in that teen period. Like what exactly, it's like decoding. It's like, but I think, I think language, (laughs) but I I think your, your, your narrative um, of the situation is so important because it captures how we as parents can get caught up in our own priorities. Because that's our job. You thought you're doing the right thing for your daughter to not have her in school. And so many of parents felt that way, right? And so many kids have come to my office because they've gotten depressed because they were saying the same things. I need to go back to school and they can't go. And they needed that socialization and that peer support and the organization that's put into the actual school setting and not online. And a lot of kids, I think, have come to me because of the stress of doing virtual school. I think across the board, you know, definitely my ADHD kids have really struggled with that. But I think several, several kids have struggled with switching from in-person school to virtual school. And um, we'll see how it goes this coming year. I think it's going to be very different. Um, you know, my where my son goes to school now, they had a virtual option and an in-person option, but he was in kindergarten. So I put him in in-person kindergarten because I felt like he won't understand the concept of school if we do it virtually. Um, but they have made masks optional. So, you know, the mask thing is going to be a, a work in progress. We'll see how it goes. But um, I think that kids have a lot of tough choices. I think kids are wearing their, their masks on their face, their hearts and their sleeves, you know, at a very young age now, their opinions have to show much earlier. So they're maturing much faster, I think now having to become more of a self-advocate. And just touching back on something in the past that we talked about earlier today was, um, I think that a lot of teens and kids have less stigma about getting mental health care. They are more vocal, more open to getting uh, care, more um, open to saying, hey, I need some help. And I think us as parents, we need to do a better job of listening, heeding their words and acting on it because we still have that stigma and that fear. You know, we don't want them to get labeled. We don't want them to get misdiagnosed. We don't want them to think about themselves as having a disorder, right? As having anxiety, as having something that's a disability. We want our kids to be limitless. And I think that this generation of child is teaching us that just because you need something that's a work in progress doesn't mean that you're limited. You can still be limitless and a work in progress together. And I think, you know, again, they're teaching us that, right? We're learning that from them. Yeah, I think that's why this whole wave of gentle parenting just kind of has come about, you know, because the experience that Sammy just described, you know, if I go back into my childhood, my mom would not have thought two seconds to listen to me, you know, us being both from immigrant backgrounds, you know, the, the parents back then were doing what they needed to do to survive. And, and that whole situation wasn't there um, as much. It was like, you know, immigrant, immigrant mom, I know best. (laughs) And, you know, even till this day, uh, I know best, you know, and, and it's true because, you know, we, eventually will emulate kind of how we were parented, you know, and it's a natural thing. It's we, we do what we saw. And, and so to kind of relearn that and to, to navigate that in this climate is really challenging for parents because our parents didn't have the same things to think about with them growing much faster 
than their, you know, developmental age, being right. having access to this dialogue worldwide on social media, you know, right. um, having these discussion like Black Lives Matter and about, you know, p- political things. I mean, we didn't have access to that until much later in life. So right. parents are having to navigate these discussions and um, deal with all of this way, way earlier. And so I think that's why this whole concept of gentle parenting and and really listening and understanding is is become a whole nother challenge for them. And so I I just really sympathize with all parents all around. I mean, I don't know how they do it, but um, you know, one thing that I I want to cover before before we end our time with you because we could talk to you for hours um, is I would love to get your thoughts about meditation for children um, because I know a lot of psychologists and a lot of mental health providers are um, providing that as a source for children and it's still new and 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 I want to try to kind of break that stigma and to get your thoughts on um, about it that would be wonderful. The alternative ways of um, working with medicine and meditation are still still a work in progress. I think we're still growing, but I think again, our gener- our younger generation is pushing us to test the boundaries, as every generation has. Um, I think that because there's so much going on in the world, we're just bombarded with so much on the screen in school with our parents, with soccer practice, with cheerleading. We're just doing everything. I think that um, having a meditation practice or really, you know, I think meditation is frightening for a lot of people, but really, um, and um, there is a meditator, her name is um, Miss Fletcher, Margaret Fletcher, I believe. And her statement about meditation is to give adaptation energy. And it's the ability to really have more um energy to adapt and be flexible to things when you're stressed out. That's the gift that meditation can give you. And that's what we want our kids to be able to do, to think on their feet, to be resilient, to roll with the punches, to still get up after they fall. And I think the ability to still your mind and be cognizant of the sensations around you, your connection to the rest of the universe, your connection to your community, your connection to your breath, your connection to your heartbeat, I think can provide some of that awareness and that ability to kind of be mindful and hold many parts of the world um, in play while still being still. So it gives you the ability to juggle multiple things. Um, so with my kids, what we do in the evening, and it doesn't, meditation doesn't necessarily have to be sitting still and breathing and saying, oh, right. But it can also be walking. You can do a walking meditation, which I think a lot of kids would really benefit from because they want to move, right? They have energy, but you can walk in a way that still gives you this awareness and this acceptance of, of being. Um, so I think a walking meditation is fantastic. We do a rainbow meditation with our kids where um, at night they'll breathe in the color red, breathe out the color red, breathe in the color orange, breathe out the color orange, and they'll take turns saying the colors that they want, add in more colors. Um, and I do a practice with them called uh, Rosebud Thorn, which I think a lot of uh, different schools do as well. But where at the end of the day, we'll talk about the rose of the day, something positive that happened, a potential thorn of the day, which is something negative that may have happened. Um, we're a work in progress that we're working on. And then a bud, what we're looking forward to tomorrow. So I was doing this uh, practice with my, my boys. And one day my older son, uh, Gavin, said, you know, mom, I want to add something else into this meditation. So I said, what would that be? He said, I want to add in a magical thorn. So I said, okay, what's, what's a magical thorn? He says, a magical thorn is something that was bad that we turned into something good. And I was like, Poof. I was so thrilled, right? That he was making that connection that just because something from one perspective is a thorn doesn't mean it's really a thorn, right? But the, but the goal of that kind of practice is to be build our, into our kids the awareness that you can have all of it. It's not all or nothing. It's not black or white. There are colors. There is a spectrum and there is growth and there is tomorrow. Because for me, when I see the kids and that I ask, you know, what are you looking forward to? And they say, you know, nothing when they're hopeless. That's where I have the most concern for those kids because kids have such a short attention span on their own, right? ADHD or not, they don't have a long attention span and their concept of time is warped, right? It's hard for them to do sequential thinking. Um, chronological thinking. So we need to have them think that tomorrow is close by, tomorrow is attainable, and tomorrow can be better. 
And I think with the meditation practice that, that hopefully you incorporate with your, your own kids or your family, that helps make tomorrow seem more positive. That's awesome. That I love the rainbow thing. I, I'll definitely be using that. I want to just sum that up for parents real quick. So here's what you do. You've never, you want to incorporate meditation into your life. You don't know where to start. It's very simple. You already have a morning routine and you already have a nighttime routine. You're going to add one minute into that. Something that you feel that you can do with your kids, such as the rainbow breathing or just breathing two, three breaths together. And then talking about your day, which is the kind of what I do with my girls. And then we do the same, but we don't, we don't have names for it, but we'll say, well, let's talk about something good that happened. Let's talk through something, whatever, what kind of intentions do we have for tomorrow? We always say affirmations. So just tell yourself, write it down. What do you want to do with them? Once you've done that and it becomes second nature, that's when you start reading more on the internet or online. You can come to our website and you can go to Dr. And I do too, to, to build on that, but it starts really little. Um, so yeah. And in, in that minute, I think affirmations are fantastic. I'm so glad you brought that up because that can become the family mantra, right? It can be as simple as you read your story, you put them in bed and say, we are loved. We are part of this family we're safe. You know, something like that. You come up with something together as a family that you say together because that that verbalization will become an internal emotion, an internal truth that this child can carry with them to tackle any challenge in their life. So, I think that affirmation is a fantastic idea because it becomes something to meditate upon also, a phrase they can meditate on if they would if they like to. Yeah. I I love those ideas so much. And just getting out in nature too. Uh, You know, if you even have like two, three minutes to go outside, I love the walking meditation. I'm so glad you mentioned that because we were going to talk about it in our social media too, because kids have so much energy. It's hard for them to sit still even for a few minutes, you know, so even if they're going for a walk or taking the dog to a walk, you know, um, even if you're not closing your eyes, you can comment on what they see in nature, you know, comment on the trees the flowers, the smells, the sounds, that is all a part of meditation is just being present and looking at the things around us, as opposed to where we are right now, where we're so, you know, uh, we're, we're so into what we're doing and not really being in the moment. You know, we're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about the past. We're being anxious about tomorrow. And so to teach kids that, that skill to just be still and present is, is huge. And I'm so glad that you put it the way you did. Cause I love that so much. Okay. We have, we have so much <laughs> that we talked about. And I think parents probably need to listen to this episode a couple of times because you gave us so many pearls. Um, and you know, the topic of mental health, like I said, from the beginning is huge and, and we can talk to you, uh, you know, uh, so many more times. So we would love for you to come on again and target another topic like ADHD, for example, we would awesome. love to talk about things like that. Absolutely. But before we, um, before we go, we call it a day because we know you're a busy mom and, and you've got many things to do. Um, any take home tips, any last things you'd like our parents to know um, or just takeaways? I, I would just let parents know that, um, you know, if your child is asking for help, honor them, get them help. I would say start with your pediatrician, your friendly pediatrician does so much good. Um, and if you need to come to a psychiatrist or a counselor or a therapist, that's okay. You know, we don't bite. We're really here just to help you. Um, hopefully my podcast, Thinking It Through with Dr. Naidu, Child Psychiatrist can help give you some more information and point you in the right direction. And, um, and that I think, I think the fact that we have so many parents who are seeking help and seeking guidance is also so powerful. There's a community of people out there who just want you to know that you're doing the right thing. Given whatever you're doing, however stressed you are, you are enough as a parent. And whatever you do is the right thing at that time. And if you feel like it's not, tomorrow is a new day. You can start again. You can start again. So um, I guess that's what I would say. And and you know, please feel free to email me if you have any questions. Uh, Dr. Shivana Naidu at gmail.com. Um, on my, my podcast, also thinking it through with Dr. Naidu, child psychiatrist, you can find that on Spotify, Buzzsprout, Apple. Um, and I'm hoping to have some educational kind of seminars or sessions 
in the fall and in the beginning of 20, uh, uh, 2022, where I can just have meetings with parents and just kind of answer their questions about certain topics, whether it's ADHD or anxiety. So um, the platform I'll do that with is called orchid.exchange.com. And that's where my, my um, website, my landing page is on Orchid Exchange. And um, if you want to type in the code PDPALS, then you'll get a discount on that. Hey, great. <laughs> thank you for that. That's wonderful. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. We really hope that we can collaborate with you a bunch more in the future. This was just as educational as it was fun for us. So thanks for coming. Oh, great. I'm so honored to be on this. And I hope that I can be helpful to you in any way possible. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any fact.